So I asked this question last week. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask again today. I'm hoping to get a better response uh, because I figure some of you, after hearing the question last week, went home and did some research. Uh, how many of you have heard of or seen the blog Humans of New York, that page? Raise your hand. Okay, you guys are better percentage-wise than the first service. That's good. I think, I think second service is a younger crowd, probably more hipper. I'll just say that. You're hipper than the first service. You guys know that. There's a, a blog, Facebook page, Instagram account, uh, and now a book called Humans of New York. And it started as a simple catalog of photography. Basically, Brandon Stanton, who's a photographer, decided that his goal was to take pictures of 10,000 different people in New York and basically just make a catalog of faces, of faces that he saw around the city, kind of create a catalog of a city and its inhabitants. But soon after it started, something changed in him, and he started not just photographing these people, but interviewing them. And what he started to realize with these, was these faces that he was so interested in taking pictures of, there was a person behind the face. And behind that person, there was a story. And he became almost as interested or more interested in the story than an actual picture of the face. And uh, he started to realize, and now 10 million people who follow this blog or Facebook page or Instagram account realize that it's a great catalog of people and their stories. Every person has a real story and every story and somehow can relate to our story. And so today we're starting this new series called Humans of the Bible. And the idea behind this series is that the people in this book are not characters, like characters in a storybook. That they're real people, real humans who lived real lives and they have real stories and their story can still speak into our stories. And so today we're starting with the story of Moses. And so if you have your Bibles, open it to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to take a long and winding road, kind of like Moses did, but I promise you we will get to Deuteronomy 6. Uh, it's page 126. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one of these on the floor around you. You can pick that up and go to page 126. We'll have the verses on the side screens as well. Kids! There's a uh, Kids Adventure Bible on the floor around you somewhere, what place. If you pick that up, it's page 203 in the Kids Adventure Bible. Now, we want to provide that for you. Uh, there's some around somewhere. They're hardcover and they're green. And I had to look up that page number, so make sure you use it because I did work before the service to get there, all right? Um, and uh, as I just acknowledged before, hey, we're in our family service. Uh, it's a great way for us to worship together. And so, kids, if you've got the uh, kids' version of the message notes, some of the, that verse, some of the words, you can fill in the blank. If you get bored of me talking about this, you can go look at that verse and fill in the blanks, and then you can have all your homework done by the time we leave here, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Uh, it's really a sermon. You know, it starts with the words, these are the words Moses spoke to all of Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. So it's a sermon. It's a really long sermon, if you look at it. It's longer than any I've ever preached. Uh, in fact, it's even longer than any Kevin Russell's ever preached. And so it's really long. Um, I wrote the first verse of this message and sent that to Kevin to make sure that he had that in there, that he could talk about that. Uh, this, this sermon, Deuteronomy, comes near the end of Moses' very long and very fruitful life. And what he's doing in this sermon, and in fact, in this passage we're going to read from Deuteronomy 6 in a minute, is he's looking back on his life. He's looking back and he's telling the people of Israel what he's experienced and what he's learned in his life. What he's seen, what he's heard, and what he's experienced. So before we look at the passage, I want to talk to you about the life of Moses. What did he see? What did he learn? What did he experience? Because I would imagine that most of us know some of Moses' story, but maybe don't know how it all fits together. So let me just ask you, and kids, you're welcome to participate too. What is something you know about the story of Moses? What'd you say? Ten commandments. Ten commandments. Good. The movie or the actual commandment? Never mind. 
What else? You don't have to raise your hand. Just shout it out. Go ahead, Joey. He murdered another guy. Ooh, man, go right for the throat. Huh, Joey? What else? Burning bush. Good. What else? Huh? Humble. Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. He even wrote that down. Uh, What else? I see a hand back there. Go ahead. What did you say? Egypt. Egypt, right. So I think we know part of Moses' story, but do we know how it all fits together? Let's just take a few minutes and look back at the life of Moses and how it fits together. Um, So Moses uh, was a child uh, of the Israelites. He was a, a person who was Israeli by background. Okay, so what we need to know about the nation of Israel at this time is that we, we start the story in Exodus 1 where Israel is being held as slaves in Egypt. The history of Israel started in Egypt when uh, one man, a guy named Joseph, fled, actually was sold into slavery in Egypt, but then set up camp there, set up house, and he brought his whole family during a famine uh, to the nation of Egypt. And that, that family was fruitful and multiplied, just like God commanded them to do. And they became a very large nation, the nation of Israel in Egypt. Well, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who was called Pharaoh, the Pharaoh saw this and he started to get nervous that these people are becoming very plentiful. So we've got to do something about this or else they will overtake us, the Egyptians. And so what they did was they decided to make them slave laborers for the Egyptians. They put the Israelites to work uh, building blocks to build houses for the Egyptians. But that didn't work. I mean, it worked. They were obviously working, but uh, that didn't stop them from multiplying. In fact, the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and became larger. And so uh, the Pharaoh decided he needed to make a very drastic change. And what did he decide to do? He was going to kill all of the baby boys born to the Israelites. He was just going to throw them in the Nile River. Not a nice guy, this Pharaoh, right? And so that's what he decides. Well, there was a woman in Israel who was very smart. And she had a baby boy named Moses. Now, Moses had a smart mom. How many of you have smart moms? Raise your hand if you have a smart mom. I see some of you looking at your moms right now. Should I raise my hand right now? Yeah, if you're smart, you'll raise your hand and say you have a smart mom, right? Moses had a really smart mom. Here's what she did. She knew that if they found out she had a baby boy, that he would be killed. So she hid him away. She hid him away for three months. And then when he started to make noise and it became a little more obvious that she had a baby, she decided she wanted to do something to save his life. And so instead of being thrown in the river and drowned, what she did was she took Moses down to the river herself and waited until the daughter of the Pharaoh or the princess came into the river to bathe and she put Moses in a basket and she kind of floated him gently out to Pharaoh's daughter. And so she's in the river bathing, and she sees this little baby come floating in a basket. And she decides, oh, he's so cute. I want to adopt him. But then she goes, well, I don't know anything about raising a baby. I wonder if there's anybody who could raise a baby. And Moses' mom happens to be standing right there. And she said, "Uh, do you want me to raise the baby for you? Pretty smart, right? Moses has a smart mom. And so what happens then is Moses grows up in kind of this weird family situation where he's the daughter or the son of the daughter of the king. So he's a prince because he's adopted by the princess, but he grows up an Israelite, a slave. He's a slave, but he's also a prince. He's got this weird family situation where he doesn't really fit in either world. And so... And so I was thinking about this and reading through this today, I thought, you know what? Some of us don't feel like we really fit in anywhere, right? 
And so I just want to say to you today, if you're here and you don't feel like you fit anywhere, maybe you're in an awkward family situation, you got to go back and forth between mom and dad's house and that's hard sometimes, or maybe you're new in town, your family just moved here, or you're new in your school, you feel like you don't really have any friends, I want you to know that Moses could relate to you. If that's you, if you don't know where you fit, Moses can relate to you. And what we're going to see in just a minute is that God's going to do incredible things in Moses and through Moses. And God loves to use misfits to accomplish his purpose. In fact, we see that not just in Moses. We see it in in David. David, who becomes king, when everybody else looked at David and said, no, he's not king material, God looked at David and chose him as a king because God says, I look at the inside. The people look at the outside, but God looks at the inside. And then we see it in a guy named Daniel, who Daniel, similar to Moses, he was uh, from the nation of Israel, but he grew up in a palace. He, He got to live in a palace, but he didn't really fit in with the king. You know, he was in this weird situation. He was kind of a misfit, but God used him to do amazing things. And then we see that again with Jesus, when Jesus is choosing his disciples, and he chooses guys from this ragtag bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, and, and uh, they're guys that were rejected by other rabbis. They weren't following any other rabbi, and they were guys that probably, if they were sitting in this room, other than being dressed in first century clothes, but if they were here today, we wouldn't take a second look at them. They were just normal guys. In fact, when the, uh, when the ruling council of the Jews saw Jesus' followers, they said that they were ordinary, unschooled men but that they had been with Jesus. And this is the story we see over and over again. I want you to know that if you don't feel like you fit in anywhere, you fit in with Jesus. And so back to Moses, all right? Moses grows up. One day he's out supervising the laborers. So this is a a, a sign of his weird upbringing. He's one of the Israelites, but he's in supervisory role over them for for the king, right? So he's supervising the laborers. The people of Israel are working hard to satisfy the Egyptians, and he sees this fight break out, and this Egyptian is beating up one of his people, one of the Israelites, and so Moses goes over to intervene in the fight and ends up killing the guy. So he's, he, he decides, I'm just going to cover it up, and so he buries the guy and decides not to say anything about it, but the next day he finds out people are talking about it. Somebody saw it, and they're starting to gossip around the camp, and it gets back to Moses that they know something has happened, and if he doesn't do something, he's going to be in trouble. So, kids, how many of you have ever been in trouble? Go ahead, raise your hand if you've ever been in trouble, or adults. <laughs> what do you do when you know you're going to get in trouble? What? Cry? <laughs> Moses decided to do something that I don't recommend you do. He ran away. He ran away and hid. That's probably not the right answer, although somebody in the first service did say that. I hide. But Moses ran away, and he runs to a place called Midian. And while he's in Midian, away from Egypt, he meets a girl, and they fall in love, and they get married. And Moses probably thinks that's where he's going to spend the rest of his life. He just becomes a shepherd, starts a family, and probably think he's, he's there for 40 years. He probably thinks, I'm just going to die here. I'm going to die here, a shepherd. But then something happens. While Moses is in Midian, something happens. And that's that back home in Egypt, the Pharaoh has died. The king dies, and a new king is put in place. And he tightens the screws on the Israelites. He starts to turn up the heat on their slavery, makes them work a lot harder. And the Israelites, in in response, they cry out to God, and God hears their cries, and he decides he's going to go rescue his people. But who to send? Who to send? I know. I'll send Moses. But wait, Moses is in Egypt. Remember, he's over in Midian. So how do I get his attention? Well, I mean, this is a long time ago, so you can't call him on the phone, right? Can't 
send him a text. Can't even, they didn't even have Snapchat back then. There's no way to get a hold of Moses. So uh, God decides to use the old-fashioned way, smoke signals. He appears to Moses in a burning bush. Moses is walking by one day, and this bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses notices this because it's really weird. And uh, all of a sudden, he's walking by, and the bush starts talking to him. Moses. Well, it's actually not the bush talking to them. God is talking to him from inside the burning bush. And he tells him, he says, Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. I'm concerned about my people. I know that they're hurting. I know that they're in pain and distress. I just want to stop right there and say... um, now, if you come in this room this morning and you're hurting, you know, if you are in pain and distress, I want you to know that God sees you. If you're lonely and depressed, and if you're crying out to him, you can know that God hears you. God is concerned for you. He won't leave you alone. He is a, he is a God of rescue and a God of refuge. And he cares for his people. He hears the cries of the Israelites. And so God goes to Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to set my people free. I'm going to take you all to the land that I promised your ancestors. It's a fertile land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he says, and Moses, you are going to go tell Pharaoh. And Moses is like, why me? Like, who am I to go to Pharaoh? What what will I say? I, I don't talk very well. I, I don't know what to do. Why don't you send somebody else? And you know what God says? What's his response to Moses when he says, uh, he says, don't be afraid. I'll go with you. I will go with you. I'm going to send you, but I will be with you. And this sets off a really cool period in the life of Moses and in, in the life of Israel in a really dark time in Egypt because Moses gets to watch God perform a whole bunch of miracles on his people and in Egypt and and to try to get Pharaoh to free the Israelites. In fact, God tries nine different plagues that he sends on the nation of Egypt before the 10th one actually works. Does anybody know what one of the plagues were? Locusts, frogs, killing all the babies. That's the 10th one, right? That's good. Boy, yeah, Jenkins is doing you good. Yeah, so God tries nine different plagues. He, sends, he turns all the water into blood. Uh, he, he sends frogs. He sends gnats. He sends flies. He sends uh, death on all the livestock of Egypt. He sends hail. He sends locusts and darkness and boils. But none of these worked. And so then God sends the deadliest plague, a plague that killed all of the firstborn males in Egypt. But God spared the Israelites. He passed over the Israelites. So then Pharaoh lets the Israelites go. He's tired of all these plagues. He's tired of losing people that are dear to him. And so he lets them go. And so they they pack up all their stuff, very quickly head out, and they start heading for the promised land. But what happens is that Pharaoh changes his mind. He decides, I'm not going to let my slave labor get away. And so he sends his army after the Israelites. So the Israelites are running away, and the Egyptians come up behind them, and they run into a sea, a big body of water. And so they stop, and they look, and right ahead of them is the sea. And they turn around and look, and the Egyptian army with all of its chariots is coming at them. So they look to the right, mountains. They look to the left, mountains. They look behind them, chariots. They look ahead, sea. And then Moses raises his staff, and the water from the sea parts. And in the middle is a path of dry land. And the Israelites walk through the middle of the sea, 
on dry land. And as they get through the middle of the sea, they turn around and realize that the Egyptians are still following them. And so they get to the edge, they get out of the sea, they walk and they turn around and as they do, God sends the water back in place and the Egyptian army is swallowed up by the sea and they're seen no more. And the Egyptians or the Israelites are left in the middle of the desert. They're not in the promised land. Then something else happens. These people who had just been set free from slavery, they've, they've seen God work all these miracles. They've, they've watched all their enemies be destroyed, just swallowed up by the sea. These people start to complain. They complain against Moses and they complain against God. We don't like the desert. We wish we could have just stayed back in Egypt. At least there we got to eat whatever we wanted. We're thirsty, so God sends water. We're hungry, so God sends food. He sends manna, the stuff that just falls from the sky every day, and they can grind it up and make it into bread. We don't like the manna. God sends meat. No matter what they complained about, God would respond. But no matter how God responded, no matter what Moses did, the people would grumble more. They would complain more. And so at one point, God decided, you know what? I'm going to have to leave you here for a while. Like, you're not ready for the promised land. You're going to have to stay here. But if you're going to stay here, he decides, I'm going to give you some rules. I'm going to give you some guidelines, some, some ways to live, uh, some things that will help you relate to one another better and relate to me better. And so he calls Moses up on this hill, a mountain really, Mount Sinai, and Moses stays there with him for 40 days. And when he comes back down, he's got what's called the Ten Commandments, these, these rules for living. But while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, the people are down on the ground. And what are they doing? Well, they're grumbling again. While, while Moses is receiving God's plan from God, the people are on the ground and they're making their own plans. And man, how often do we do that? When God's got a plan for us, but we get impatient, we get tired of waiting, and here we are down on the ground just making our own plans. And that's what happens with the, with the nation of Israel. That's what the people did. They, they, when Moses comes down the mountain, he sees they've, they've had all these questions. Where is this Moses that you could talk about? We don't know who this guy is. Where, what is God up to? Who is this God that led us out of Egypt? Let's make our own gods. And so when Moses comes down the mountain, what's happened is the people have taken all of their gold, all of their jewelry, all of their treasure. They put it together. They melted it into a pot and they made a golden calf out of it. This is the God they're going to worship, a calf made of gold, a golden calf, which, by the way, does anybody know where golden calves live? At the Golden Corral. Yeah. Hashtag dad jokes. Um, <laughs> But because of their complaining, because of their disobedience, the people of Israel, they get to get right up to the brink of the promised land. They get to get right up to the edge. And in fact, some of them get to go in and experience it. A few of them get to go and see what it would really be like to live there. But none of them, none of them, none of the adults anyway, except two, Caleb and Joshua, because of their faithfulness, they get to go in and experience the promised land. But none of the other adults, God says, none of you are going to. I'm still going to take your people into this land that I promised. I promised your ancestors I'm going to take them there. But you don't get to go, except Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses, even the leader, Moses, doesn't get to go. They'll, they'll wander in the wilderness for the rest of their lives and never reach that land that God promised them. And so this is where Deuteronomy picks up. All right, we're on the edge of the promised land. Moses has seen all this stuff in his life. He's looking back on everything he's experienced, the, the royalty and the slavery, the, the miracles and the disappointments, the obedience and the mistakes. And Moses wasn't a perfect man. He didn't live a perfect life, but he gets to this point where he's 
perched on the brink of the promised land. And he looks back over his entire life and he's going to preach this sermon where he tells the people and and the generations to come, hey, what are the most important things that I've learned in my life? In all of my experience, in other words, Moses says, if you don't learn anything else from my story, here's what I want you to learn. And that's what we're going to take away today in Deuteronomy 6.4. I know it took us a long time to get there, but I promise it's worth it. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, he says this, of all the things you need to know, here's what I need you to know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And as he says this, I just picture Moses um, looking back on that moment when he came down the mountain and he saw that golden calf and the people worshiping this false god. And knowing all he knows, Moses looks and he says, that's not good. Like worshiping something else besides the one God, the Lord our God, and not loving him with all your heart, soul, and strength, that's not good. It's almost like he's saying, look, I know that worshiping God isn't always easy, that living a godly life isn't always easy, that sometimes people think you're weird when you live according to God's standards. I know that it's not always easy to follow his commands, but in this life, even in this life, it's better than any other alternative. And in the next life, there is no other alternative. It's almost as if Moses was not just looking back, but looking forward to our generation and saying, hey guys, um, in your life, there are going to be a lot of things that want to steal your time and attention. And some of them are good things, and some of them are not good things, but none of them are ultimate things. That the ultimate thing, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and your strength. Of all the things I've learned, that's the most important. And then he goes on. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Think about that word, impress. Impress them on your children. I think about like an embossing machine. If anybody ever had one of those that you could, um, you know, it's got uh, metal and pressure and heat and it makes a permanent embossment on something. Like impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so here's the heart of where I want to settle for the last uh, few minutes that we have today. Looking back on my life, Moses says, if I can only tell you uh, a couple of things, it's one, love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And two, you have to invest in the next generation. That there is a a generation of people coming up behind you. And if you are not intentional about investing them and about teaching them about God and teaching them to love God, they're not going to come to know. They'll, They'll have no idea what it means to love God with all their heart and their soul and their strength. Listen, the church is never more than just one generation from dying out completely. And it's almost like Moses understands that and he looks forward and he says, hey, if you don't tell the next generation about God, nobody's going to. And so if you're here and you're a parent, here's what it means for you, parents. You are the primary disciple maker in your home. You are the primary person to teach your children about God. And that doesn't matter if they're two or 12, or 22, or 42. 
You know, there, there is no one who has the time or the authority to invest in your children like you do. If you're a Christian with children, this is the most important disciple-making relationship in your life, is your children. Uh, and yes, the church is here to help and to instruct and to equip and to partner with you. But at our very best, we get two hours a week with your kids. You get the other 166. We can't possibly do in two hours what you can do with the other 166. And, and we can't undo in two hours what the culture can do in 166. And so if you're a parent, that's got to be your primary disciple-making relationship. If you're not a parent, I want you to know Moses is still speaking to you. If your kids are grown, you don't get interacting with them as much, you don't get 168 hours a week with them, Moses is still speaking to you because no matter what stage of life you are at, um, there is a generation of people coming behind you that can use your experience and your knowledge, that can benefit from what you've learned and what you've seen. If you're in your 60s or 70s or even beyond, there's a bunch of 40 and 50-year-olds in this church uh, who are parenting teens now or who are just new empty nesters. Lord knows we can use your guidance and gain from your experience. Like you've been through this stage of life. You have the knowledge that it's not going to last forever, even when it seems like it's going to last forever. You know, we need to hear how you did that. You have something to offer us. If you're in your 40s or 50s, uh, there are 20 and 30-somethings who are newlyweds or raising kids or dealing with the perils of the dating scene, and they can learn from you. They, there's a generation that needs to hear, you know, how did you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength while you were building a career and building a home and, and taking on a mortgage or, or while you were, you know, checking out the dating scene and you were exploring that? How did you become, how did you stay pure while you were single? They need your experience. If you're in your 20s or 30s, there's a whole bunch of high school students that could use your experience and your wisdom. They, they won't listen to me. I'm too old. I'm hopelessly uncool. Uh, I'm old enough to be their dad. But if you're in your 20s or 30s, you're still cool to them. You're the coolest person on earth, and they will listen to you. Uh, they need you. They want to hear how you made it through the high school years. You know, If you're in high school, I want you to know that middle schoolers look up to you. The middle schoolers think you're so cool, you hung the moon, and they'll listen to anything you say. And so if you're a high school student who loves Jesus, you have a chance to invest in middle schoolers. And middle schoolers, same thing with elementary school students. You're, you're, you're in that maybe awkward phase and you feel like you don't fit in, but there's a whole bunch of elementary school students that think you're so cool and they want to know how you made it through this difficult time. And, you know, if you're a middle school student and you're new in middle school and you're like, I don't really like being in big church anymore, I don't... You know, I like to have in my own classroom. Maybe what you need to do is sign up to go help in gin kids and invest in some of those elementary school kids. And so even elementary school students in the room, if you're in, you know, second, third, or fourth grade and you know Jesus and you have come to love God with all your heart and soul and strength, you need to tell your friends about that because you have friends at your school that don't know Jesus, that don't love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. So you've got to talk about God. You've got to invite them to church. Tell them your story of getting to know Jesus. All of us, all of us have someone who's coming behind us at a stage of life that we've experienced, we've made it through, and they could use our help. They could use our knowledge and our experience. Now, ah, but what do they need? What do they need from us? I mean, that's the important thing that we've got to think about, right? Well, there's three things, and these are in your notes, both kids and adults. These are in your notes if you want to follow along. Three things that the next generation needs from us. Number one, they need the word of God. 
The next generation needs the word of God. Moses says, impress these commandments on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. And so here's what that means for us as parents. When your kids have a problem and they come to you for a solution, what do you tell them? Don't give them your opinion. Take them to scripture. Take them to the word. I mean, why, 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 does, why do Christians believe this? Or why does this happen? Or why do you think God lets? Well, Billy, I think that God, no, forget that. Go to the word. What does scripture say about it? Use that as your guide. You know what? That takes you off the hook. It means you don't have to be that smart. And it's the same thing in a disciple-making relationship. If you've got somebody who you're discipling and they ask you a question about, well, why do Christians believe or why do you think or, you know, your opinion doesn't matter nearly as much as what the word of God says. Your opinion is going to change over time. The word of God stays true. So take them to scripture. And that doesn't mean you have to have it memorized. But you can even say, you know what? That's a great question. Let's dig into scripture and let's talk about that together. And together you can, you know, decipher what scripture has to say about that. You know, one, one pastor says that the Torah, which the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy being the last of the Torah, that the Torah is God's wedding gift to the people of Israel. That, that God realized uh, that he needed to give a gift to these people. And so that the Torah was his gift to these people as he uh, got into a marriage with them. And so there's a, there's a gift of scripture that God has given us. Let's use it like a gift. So they need, they need the word of God. The second thing is the next generation needs our prayers. They need us to be praying for them. Moses often prayed for the people of Israel. Now, those he was leading and those he was discipling, he, he prayed for the next generation. We see it in Exodus 33. He's praying for the nation of Israel. And then in Exodus 34, the Israelites go into battle against the Amalekites. And Moses realizes that when he's raising his hands, which this represents interceding for his people, when he's raising his hands, the Israelites are winning the battle. And when he lowers his hands, the Amalekites are winning the battle. The Israelites are losing. And he realizes that as he's raising his hands, what he's doing is he's, he's raising this battle up to God. He's letting God fight the battle for him. And parents, disciple makers, we don't need to fight these battles. God will fight this battle for us. But what do we got to do? We got to be lifting people up in prayer. That's what Moses is doing. He's lifting his arms. He's lifting people up in prayer. And every time he's lifting them up in prayer, they start winning the battle. Why? Because God is fighting the battle for him. And so we got to remember that. we got to be able to pray for people. You know, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. And Psalm 90, 16 says, May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to your children. What a great prayer for our kids. Lord, I just pray that my kids would see your splendor, that they would see it in me, that they would see it in the world around them. And then as they get older, pray their faith would become less about your faith and that they would on their own see God's splendor, that they would, their faith would become a new faith that they own. You know, one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our kids is to constantly be in prayer for them, to be interceding for them as Moses did. Kids or even adults who are young in their faith, they don't always know how to pray or what to pray. And so what a gift somebody like Moses can give us to, to intercede on their behalf. We can go to God and we can ask for what they would ask for if they knew to ask. Right? We can ask for that on their behalf. And so if you're in a disciple-making relationship, same thing. Pray this for your disciples. Pray, pray, pray that their eyes would be open to see God's splendor. Uh, ask them to see it in your actions and in the way you live. See, all of this loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, it doesn't happen magically. 
right? It takes sacrifice. It, it takes time. I mean, the word is great and prayer is important, but there's one other thing the next generation needs from you, and it's they need your time. They need your time. True life change and true disciple making happen as we impart our life on one another. You know, uh, in Psalm 90, Moses also says, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, Moses says, your days are numbered. Don't waste them. You know, and I wonder uh, if we were to look at our schedules, what that would say about our priorities. Like, like if I were to look at your schedule, what would it say? Only at your schedule, only at your calendar. What would it say about the kind of children you were trying to raise if you're a parent? Would it say you're raising a goalie? <laughs> Raising a major league pitcher? Raising a major league Minecraft player? <laughs> or fidget spinner? Uh, or raising a disciple maker? I was so convicted by this this week, guys. As I look at my schedule and how I spend my time, I've just reminded, man, I gotta, Jesus has got to be my model for this. Jesus is our model. We see this over and over again in Jesus' life. How did he invest in the next generation of disciples? Well, John 3 said he spent time with them that he took them places. They walked with him. Uh, the word used in John 3 is the Greek word diatribo or diatribo. It's like diatribe. It means uh, getting under someone's skin or, or rubbing off on them. Like he spent so much time with them that they started, he started to rub off his life, rubbed off on them. He, he walked places with them. He did life with them. And, and this model comes from his father, God, who loved us so much that he sent Jesus down to spend time with us, right? God, could, I don't know if you thought about this. God could have saved us magically from heaven, but he didn't. He wanted to come down and spend time with us, so he sent Jesus. And Jesus came to earth, and he walked, walked the earth for 33 years, and he lived a perfect life, a life that we could never live, but to show us how. And then he died a tragic death, a death that you and I deserve for our sin. But Jesus took that penalty for us. And then he was raised from the dead three days later to show that God can overcome anything in our lives. That was the model. That's the model we have. And there are so many things that can occupy our time and fill our lives. And when we're not careful, those things, even the good things, we can just let them become the ultimate things, the most important things, the things we really care about. But what we see in the life of Moses, and in fact, what we see in the life of Jesus is the ultimate things need to be to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and then to teach others to do the same. That This world offers lots of good, fun, fulfilling things, but if we're not spending the bulk of our time building ourselves up in the Lord and helping others to know him, then we're missing out on God's best for our life. And that's what we can learn from the story of Moses. Would you pray with me? God, I'm thankful for the people that come before us and uh, that we can learn from their life experience. I'm thankful for Moses. I'm thankful for the way that you worked in him and through him to build a great nation, a great family of which we're a part of today. And God, I'm thankful for your son, Jesus, that you loved us so much that you weren't content to just look down on us from heaven and bless us, but you wanted to come and spend time with us. 
I'm thankful for your son on the cross, God. We love Jesus. We're thankful for his work on the cross. We're thankful for his resurrection. And we're thankful for the example he gives us with his life. We love you, God. May our praise uh, be a, a sweet, sweet aroma to you. In Jesus' name.